Welcome. I am Laura Anderson, president of Veterinary Career Services. BCS is a recruiting firm for veterinarians, veterinary specialists, and management professionals. We are passionate about helping people achieve their career goals and lead a rewarding life. BCS is hosting this podcast series, Veterinary Specialist Career Insights, to provide insight into the career paths of accomplished veterinarians and learn more about their challenges along the way. These doctors have shared their ups and downs in their careers, the most rewarding aspect of being a veterinary specialist, and they also provide advice for those just starting out. I am extremely grateful to them for speaking with me. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Maureen Lucini, who is currently the sole hospital owner and medical director and one of the criticalists at Veterinary Medical Center of Central New York, located in East Syracuse, New York. Dr. Lucini obtained her VMD at the University of Pennsylvania and then went on to complete a small animal rotating internship at Cornell. She then went to complete a small animal emergency and critical care residency at Cornell University, where she was the first resident, and uh, became board certified in 2010. Dr. Lucini accepted a job at the Veterinary Medical Center of Central New York in 2010. And then in 2012, she became the medical director and also a partner in the practice. And in 2018, Dr. Lucini purchased all the remaining shares of the hospital and is the the sole owner of the hospital today. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you for for joining me and telling us about your, your career path. I often talk to a lot of veterinary specialists who are considering becoming a partner and really don't have an idea of how to start the process and what exactly it means and the responsibilities associated with it. So I guess if we could take a step back, and my first question I wanted to ask you is, did did you always realize you wanted to be a partner and eventually own your own specialty hospital? You know, I don't think I did. I You know, I was slow to the gate of figuring out what specialty I wanted. And then I finally got my residency and got trained in that specialty. I was just hoping to find a job to be able to do my specialty. But it was more so when I started practicing after residency and I realized what an impact your change can have on the hospital. And I was kind of mentored by the administrative team and the other partners that were here it seemed like a natural path for me. I enjoyed taking ownership of of change, um, the risks involved, um, and accepting the responsibilities of more administrative responsibilities. And so thankfully, I was invited to partnership and it worked out well. But I didn't know ahead of time. It was just a kind of a organic progression that happened once I started working. Okay. And what was the transition like from being an associate to being a partner? You know, that is an interesting one. That is something I don't think I was well prepared for. There's a change that happens when you become an owner. Um, You're no longer a colleague, a true colleague in the sense of the people you work with. You know, you may make decisions that they are not happy with, but that you have to work alongside them every day. Um, So it did make this separation between myself and the other doctors 
that I did not necessarily expect. Um, but I, I handled, I, I realized it was happening and I handled. Um, I think the other thing was, is, you know, when you are a partner of a 24 hour practice, you're always kind of on in your head with work. You know, you do your best to be able to separate it, but it's not just your clinical cases at work that then keep your mind going. It's where's the practice going? What else can I do to bring to the practice to help it thrive? Or if we're struggling making a decision, like those kind of thoughts never leave. Um, and so that's something to prepare yourself for is that you're taking on a much bigger step that has a bigger impact at work and at home. And you really have to get tools to manage that well to be able to succeed in that kind of environment. So how much of the hospital did you buy when you first started out? I bought 15% um, when I bought in. Okay. And how was that financed? So that was valued based on traditional market value before corporate came to play. And so the practice was assessed. By an outside party or an investment banker? Exactly. Like a company that does assessments. They, from there, came the price. And then from there, I was able to secure funding from a a local bank. I had to use assets of the business as well as personal assets to be able to do it. And the goal was that the practice would be healthy enough to be able to help manage that loan. But again, what I didn't realize, one of the things I wish I would have known, really, um, that sunk in well when I signed this, if the business wasn't doing well, I was going to have to pay for that loan myself. And there definitely was a year right after I bought in that it was tough. And I had, a, I had to shell out a bunch of personal cash to be able to pay my part, um, which was a significant financial hardship of that year. And I think I'm not sure if me being a majority owner now and bringing in the partner, I would not want my partner to go through that. So I think I would set up parameters to be able to help that partner through rather than making it so black and white. So I definitely learned a lot from that, especially if I'm considering bringing on partners in the future about how to help manage that, because I don't know if that's necessarily fair. So you owned 15% for five years. During those five years, really, if I'm understanding correctly, you were paying for your ownership. So were you seeing any financial rewards at the time? I did. I mean, we had great years. So I had significant financial reward, which is nice. But I think the other thing that was important, we spent a year developing our operating agreement before I became partner. So I was able to be involved in what it looked like to be a partner. And so through that process, we outlined the benefits that the partners were going to get. And it was nice because the way we set it up is even though the partners have different percentage ownership of the practice, we had equal benefits. So in addition to the financial gain, if we had a good year, you know, I had certain things um, covered like health insurance for my family and increased PTO. Um as well as other perks. So the perks that came along that may not necessarily have a tangible financial reward aspect were huge because those were things they weren't having to pay for. I see. Okay. What type of management responsibilities or administrative responsibilities came with your buy-in? I was already medical director, so I already had a, like a, a bunch of administrative responsibilities with that. But really when I became owner, it was more so 
making sure I was present at all the partner meetings, major decisions. It was just more so making more time to be available for those things. So I wouldn't say I gained any more admin duties at that time. It was just more so more of my time was needed to be able to devote to the practice. And throughout that year, Maureen, when you and the other partners were uh, developing the operating agreement, did you seek legal counsel or? Absolutely. Yep. When we regularly checked in with our lawyer about where we were and we debated things and, you know, I would say it wasn't necessarily the way as as I would want it as a junior partner, probably not, but I understand where it's coming from from the majority owner because the way our operating agreement was set up was to be able to transition the majority owner to retirement. And that was that was the way it was set up from the beginning all the way to the end. So um, there were stipulations in that as me as the minority owner and the youngest that I was taking on a lot of risk because I essentially was... I was their buyout. I was their exit strategy. Their exit strategy. Right. Okay. So how many other partners were there? There were two at the time. Oh, the majority owner and another minority owner. But I own the least. Got it. How did you as a group decide on the 15%, the number? My percentage came directly from the majority owner. So he basically approached me and he's like, I'm willing to send, sell you this percent. This is how much it costs. So it was offered to me as part of the package. So it wasn't a negotiable term. I see. It was what offered. But the good thing was, is what I've learned is that if once you own 20% or more of the business, you are legally bound to that debt of the business. So by owning only 15%, I was kind of protected in a way if something terrible happened. Wow. That's huge. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Is there anything else, Maureen, in that transition? Um, from being a shareholder to the majority shareholder that you would like to share with those specialists that are considering buying in or are buying? You know, I think the biggest transition I made from a minority owner to sole owner, majority owner is, I remember I went to a conference once and an owner was saying about how, you know, oh, being an owner is isolating. And they've never understood what that meant. And now being the solo owner, I understand that isolating feeling, it's, you know, people know that, quote unquote, the buck stops with me. So they know I may be making decisions that they don't agree with. They um, many times assume that I'm making decisions that negatively impact them, which may not be true. So it just, it puts more distance between you and your staff which becomes more evident because I'm still, I still clinically practice. So I have to work alongside these people. And so there's definitely, I wouldn't say an awkward, it's just a different relationship now that I have with my colleagues slash employees Mm -hmm. now when I work with them. So you have to be prepared. What does your management team look like now? Who supports you? I have a great management team and I, would not have bought the practice without them. So thankfully they stayed. I have a hospital administrator. I have a practice manager. I have an HR director. And then I have, and new to the past year as a director of development as, um, as a technician. We've also brought in a social worker for the last year to help with uh, collaboration, communications, really helping us set the foundation for the culture change that was needed. So I would kind of consider her part of the admin 
Great, great. So tell me more more about the social worker. Is she a consultant or is she an employee? And what does she do? She is a consultant. So she comes in, she was coming once a week for a while. She started with us on the admin team, kind of gave her a lot of background of where the practice has been, where I am, where I want the practice to go, and what the history of the employees has been. And then what we did is we started her meeting with groups and started, let's have conversations about things we know that are, that need change. And let's have an open conversation about it because, you know, I think oftentimes when there's a culture shift that's needed, the quote unquote toxicity that exists, exists a lot because of assumptions made. So people or employees assume that, you know, that, that management is doing something a certain way to, to intentionally negatively impact them, or they assume that something has gone on a way that they've heard from a colleague, but was not the way it was actually handled by management. So there's always two sides to a story. And if we don't open that, that communication to allow them to understand our side and we allow us to understand their side so we can bridge that gap, the toxicity will never go away. And, you know, not everyone's going to be able to stay. You know, there are people that can't get their head out of that space of, I'm a victim. These people do this to me. You know, that you have to be accountable for what you bring to work every day. And if that's not, trying to change and open your mind and grow, I'm not sure that person's the right fit for our practice. I see. I see. So we kind of spent a a year learning that and then identifying the people that may not change or have not changed. And we did let some people go. And there's probably more people that may have to go if they're not willing to to make the move, to make the effort to change. You know, I think we provide a great place of employment. We work hard to make sure that everyone's cared for and supported. But if you can't be part of that solution, then I'm not sure you're a good fit here anymore. Right. And so the social worker helped you through all of this. She did. And I don't think we realized that at the time that that's what happened, but standing here now, looking back over the year, it was really instrumental for bringing her on because she would meet with um, staff members that we wanted her to meet with. And she'd come back and be like, listen, this person's headspace is never going to change. You know, you can do X, Y, and Z to make this life here at work better for her or him, but he or she's never going to change. And so this person will continue to kind of see this toxicity in the practice until you let that person go. And we did, we let some people go and it's like walking into work now is like a breath of fresh air. You don't have that looming over you. It is interesting that we had to make those tough decisions, but we're in a much better place. Right. And this is your second year. So you purchased all the remaining shares in 2018. So you're just into your second year. Isn't that right? That's right. And within the first three months that I bought the practice, we went from a staff of 60 to a staff of 90. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we brought on a lot of people. So here we are all of a sudden with these new people with not really a strong foundation of the culture that we want or that we have. 
as well as, uh, you know, a lot of new personalities coming to play that we really had to adjust to. Right. And figure out where we stand. Right. So what other things have you done to improve the culture around there and to, to take care of your staff and the other doctors? Well, I think I was, I had the privilege of being an emergency critical care specialist and working with the emergency team. And I know this problem is much broader than just this practice, but there is an emergency doctor shortage. People are not coming to the field and the people that are in the field are leaving. And this is true for technicians too. And so thankfully with the support of ACVAC and VAX, we developed a task force and sent a bunch of surveys to kind of learn where are people sitting with this career? Why are people leaving? What's driving people away? And what can we do to change it? And so thankfully I took the information I got from the task force as I was one of the, the co-chairs um, and took it here and, and spoke to my staff about it. Like, listen, um, who said the ER doctor shift needs to be 12 hours? Because we all know 12 hours is not really 12 hours. It's 12 hours and then maybe two or four hours of finished paperwork. And then you go home and get whatever sleep you can and you come back and do it again the next day. And I don't think that's sustainable. And so what we learned was, you know, try and control the factors we can control shorten shifts, provide more doctor overlap. So there's more doctors to see the number of cases, provide more support staff and make sure we have a schedule that allows people to kind of breathe in between their shifts. So that was one. So I recognize the needs of ER service. And so the ER service was the main focus of the change for my, from the get-go from the first year. And so we did a lot, we did a lot for them. Um, we also, improved our appreciation for staff and benefits. And so, you know, they have, um, all staff has more uh, funds for caring for their pets. They have, um, we brought in a, a massage therapist once a month to be able to come in and care for them. Um, we have regular appreciation events. We have a week long appreciation event we just completed. Um, and we make sure that we listen to them. So, you know, be present at meetings and hear what they have to say and brainstorm about solutions together because sometimes they know the answer and I don't. So I think all of those hopefully has made this place a better place in their eyes. I think addressing the, the, um, the length of the shift, that's huge. I hear that a lot in my business because um, you're right, a 12-hour shift is, is 14 plus <laughs> typically. Right. Right. We take a step back, Maureen, and it might just be, you know, hiring um, and, and keeping technicians in ER doctors and addressing the culture. But is that or has that been your biggest challenge as a hospital owner? I think for us, staffing has been our biggest issue. It's, you know, we're in a we're not in a major city. We're not a cherished area to live. Um if, if people don't know the area, it's a beautiful area to live, a low cost living. Um, but it's hard to get people here that haven't been here, don't know the area. So that has been our biggest issue. What we've done to help with ER staffing is we've set up something called an immersion program, which is a structured mentored program for new graduates who do not do an internship to come to ER 
but feel mentored and supported rather than just being thrown in on day one. So we actually have a very structured program that basically immerses them into um, ER medicine over a few months. And then the beauty is we always have a credit list as a phone a friend for every ER doctor. So if they ever get stuck, they always have someone. Um, so we've done that and that's been really good. And what's so nice and refreshing is we have this, this younger um, group that's come in as ER doctors and, you know, they're, they're in a different group. They're millennials and they have, you know, their unique challenges, but I, I don't know if I necessarily consider them challenges. I feel like I embrace them. I understand where they're coming from and I hope to find a place that supports what's important to them to make this a sustainable career. And so again, it's checking in regularly with them. They are the future of our ER service. So I can make them happy now and make sure I regularly check in on them. And hopefully I can make them happy for as long as they want to be here. And you still have your internship program as well. We do. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. One other question I wanted to ask is how much time do you spend practicing now versus managing and leading? When I first bought the practice, we did a lot of changes. Um, so I came off the floor about 50% of the time. So and I work a four-day work week. Two will be dedicated to administrative responsibilities, two to clinical responsibilities. Now that I'm like over a year into it and, and everyone kind of is comfortable with where my head is, where my vision is, um, things I need done, I have a great admin team. I may drop some more time, but I feel like every time I drop some more time is a time that we need to grow and I need to devote time to it. So I'm trying to find a balance, but I'll probably always be at least 50% clinical, maybe 75 or somewhere in between. Okay. And so you're on the fifth day, you do, you're not in the hospital? Right. So I'm off every Monday. I try to be off, meaning like I don't call and check in or follow up on something. Um, I try just to disconnect because that's, that's the day I spend with my kids. That's my, you know, everyone has their thing that keeps them balanced and grounded. And that's my Monday to me. So um, I, tr I try to keep that separated from business. That sounds like a good work life balance to me. Yeah, I try. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so important because you want to be able to continue to do what you love, but also have a family, be a mom and a wife. and Right. And everything. And what example would I be if I wasn't taking care of myself? Right, right. What is the, the best part of owning a hospital? I, I think the greatest thing is making changes based upon their needs, the, they being the staff. So hearing them making changes and seeing the positive impact that it has is probably number one. And number two is to be able to grow a practice that provides many specialty care to pets in a place where it didn't exist before. It's nice. It's those are probably yeah, my top be two. Huge. Yeah, they're my top two things. Yes, at the end of the day, if there's a financial reward, that's great. But if I can do those two things and pay my loans, I'm doing well. Uh <laughs> That sounds great. Um, are, you mentioned earlier that you might be considering partners. I mean, is that something that that's on, on the table for you in the future? Yeah. So the, the interesting thing is, so when I bought a partners out, I was in the corporate playing field then. So mm -hmm. 
out went the window of traditional market value for practice. And so, you know, we're paying above traditional multiples of EBITDA for the shares. And thankfully, I was able to do it. But now the problem is moving forward for any new partner, the, the bar has been set much higher. And so the practice has grown. So now it's worth even more. So it is, it's hard to find traditional funding for true equity ownership. I have worked with Calico a lot, which is a company out of Pennsylvania. And they essentially help secure non-traditional funding to be able to make partner acquisitions happen in this corporate climate. And they were very instrumental in me getting um, funds for buying out the remaining shares. And I work with them regularly to figure out how am I going to bring someone else on? Because I would love to have partner. Um, and I would love for someone to continue this dream of private practice ownership. Um, it's just going to be how is that going to be structured? And I, you know, there's a few solutions that we've talked about so far. And my hope is by the time someone is here, then I've identified them as a solid partner. Um, that I will have this plan solid so I can feel comfortable bringing them on. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of planning. It does. And I mean, like I started planning this last year because it's just ever changing. And Palico has been great. They've come up with some great ideas um, about how to bring partners in. There's been a lot of discussions, a lot of interesting discussions about how to make it work because because it's got to, you got to make it work. Because if I don't, my only exit strategy is selling corporate. And I would hate for that to be the case. I would love to be able to continue this as a private practice. Right. Calico sounds great. I might try to reach out to them and, and speak with them and maybe uh, invite them to speak on a podcast because I think the information they have could be so helpful um, and, and, and to continue our conversation further um, and educate those doctors that might want to, to buy in. So I guess to, to wrap up, one last question. What do you see happening at Veterinary Medical Center of Central New York over the next year or two? Well, I think the biggest thing for me is to continue to grow the business and add more specialties. We've been mm -hmm. lucky to have three criticalists. We're still looking to find more surgeons for the surgery team. We were lucky to be able to get an anesthesiologist. And so I think specialties I would like to add. I think a second cardiologist would be great. Adding dentistry as a specialty would be wonderful. Ophthalmology would be great. And neurology would be great. So that's where I would hope we can go in the next year and a half to two years. And in the meantime, just continuing to check in with the staff and make sure that we're doing as much as we can from a practice perspective for the staff that I have so I can retain them. And that's a biggie. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Keeping them happy and, and healthy. Right. So, well, thank you, Maureen. This has been wonderful. This has been great. I know that a lot of people will enjoy listening to uh, what you've had to say and your insights about, you know, moving from an associate buying in um, to a practice and then being becoming the sole owner. I mean, that's quite a trajectory. And I know that a lot of folks will be interested. So I can't thank you enough for sharing your thoughts and your experiences and your insight. It's been great. Thank no, thank you. I appreciate it. I Appreciate the time you spend on us, helping us try to grow our practice and spread the word about our culture and where I envision the practice going. And so I, I thank you. I appreciate it.
Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, your focus on culture is huge because that is the number one priority for veterinary specialists that are looking and for practice owners. I know. Um, hiring. It's, there's just got to be a cultural fit. Right. Well, great. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks, Maureen. Sure. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. I hope that it provided some useful information for you. If I can help you in any way as you are considering a career move, please let me know. I work with veterinary hospitals and academic institutions throughout North America, and I would love to learn more about your career path.